Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to the markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investments. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This week, there may have been a lot going on, but it seemed like all global Wall Street could talk about were those on-again, off-again talks at the White House over the debt ceiling, as Speaker McCarthy kept insisting there would be no default, provided there were spending cuts. We're not going to default, but we have to spend less than we spent last year. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries responded that the cuts McCarthy was demanding just go too far. House Republicans are determined to either extract deep, painful cuts that will hurt the health, the safety, or the well-being of everyday Americans or crash the economy. And President Biden conceded that there would have to be some spending cuts, but that there had to be revenue increases as well. We've got to get something to sell on both sides. And uh, we need to cut spending, but I think revenue matters. And through it all, Wall Street insiders like Steve Schwartzman continue to insist that in the end, they'll work it out somehow. This is uh, somewhat uh, an issue of wills and desire uh, to not blink. You know, the whole world is watching. But despite all the budget sturm and drang, there were some other things worth paying attention to this week, like China's move against Micron selling its chips there. Broadly, this action appears inconsistent with the PRC's assertions that it is open for business and committed to a transparent regulatory framework. Fed minutes from the last meeting showed how uncertain the central bank is about where it is heading next. The minutes show Fed officials were more divided than usual at their maybe 
meeting as they debated uncertainties about bank problems, inflation, and the debt limit. And NVIDIA shot the lights out with revenue projections as the world stampedes to AI. When you look at the data center market, it is white hot. People that are developing data centers don't even get them developed before one of the fangs leases it uh, for 30 years. U.S. economic numbers came in stronger than anticipated with personal and business spending up and the year-over-year -year PCE core deflator stubbornly up at 4.7%. But the markets for the week pretty much reacted to those two other stories, the debt ceiling negotiations and what AI means for tech, with the S&P 500 up 0.32% for the week, ending up just over that 4,200 number people have been focused on and 200 points above our Bloomberg Elves median estimate for the end of the year of 4,000. The NASDAQ was up a whopping 2.5%, while the yield on the 10-year added another 12 basis points, ending the week just under 3.8%. To take us through the week in the markets, welcome now Lori Calvacina. She's RBC Capital Markets Head of U.S. Equity Strategy, and Jillian Tett, Financial Times Chair of the Editorial Board and Editor-at-Large U.S. So welcome back to both of you. Lori, let me start with you and what's going on with the markets. Given all of the nervousness on some fronts about the debt, it's surprising, at least to me, the equity markets didn't really react all that much, did they? Uh, they didn't. I would say the market's generally been reacting by rotating as opposed to pulling money out. And if you talk to U.S.-based equity investors, they'll tell you, hey, look, we've seen this story before. The stakes are high, but we think a deal is going to get done. So they've moved out of cyclicals and into things like tech and defensives, which is generally what you see in debt ceiling drawdowns. Um, but at the same time, we're hearing from the big kind of non-U.S. investors that they've been very worried about this. They don't know our politics as well. Um, so I would say kind of the steadier hands, the more kind of even-keeled local investors um, are taking it in stride. That doesn't mean they don't care. That doesn't mean the markets won't react if we don't end up getting a deal. But there is a patience here that makes sense. So, so Laurie, what about that recession question? Because we have been hearing these projections of a recession in 2023. It was going to be the second quarter. It was going to be the third quarter. Now it's going to be the fourth quarter. Is it just a matter of timing? Or is there a question even of whether there will be a recession? I think there's a question, a legitimate one, about whether or not we're even going to get it. Or if you end up getting something similar to 2015, 2016, which was pretty close, but not quite. And I think what's interesting, and I see this more from the lens of earnings, is that we're in an asynchronous cycle in terms of the economy. There are different industries and different sectors that are going through different processes at different points in time. If you think about sort of your inflation, you know, sort of beneficiaries, uh, the beneficiaries of higher uh, interest rates, things like financials and energy, they saw big upward revisions last year, while tech companies, growth companies, supply chain-centric sectors were all seeing downward revisions. Now the tables have turned. Everything that was getting hurt last year is in a recovery, and things that were benefiting from inflation and interest rates ramping are seeing their downward revision cycle. That's a very, very confusing cross-current, but if you spread the pain out a bit, you could actually skate by without a true sort of recession happening. One more before we turn to everybody's favorite topic, which is, of course, artificial intelligence. But Jillian, to you, you mentioned the Fed and what the Fed's likely to do. We got some strong numbers in this week, actually, indicating both on the inflation staying up, but also the economy being quite strong. Uh, where do you think the Fed is heading? Do you think they're going to continue to rise at all? And by the way, if you want to, you can give us the jobs number for next Friday. It's okay. <laughs> well, if I did that, I'd be a trader. Um, the, um, I think the Fed is under pressure to keep raising, keep tightening. It may skip that for this coming meeting and do a wait-and-see stance, but I certainly don't think it's going to cut any time soon. And I am actually think the market projections of 25 basis point rise now is quite reasonable, um, given the fact that we still haven't seen a significant decline in the inflation rate and the economy hasn't yet shown signs of being 
in recession. I think in many ways, the more interesting issue that the Fed's also facing, though, is, you know, is it going to give any hint of rethinking the inflation target going forward? Um, again, one of the messages that came back from being down in the South um, early this week and talking to people is that a lot of the commercial real estate sector um, are constantly asking Fed officials, you know, are you going to change the inflation target? There's a kind of desperate hope amongst many in that sector um, that actually the rate rises will stop because the inflation target changes. Now, the Fed's been very keen to squash that quite forcefully. But that question is going to linger and linger, particularly if the inflation keeps coming in higher than people had expected. We're going to turn to that subject, which is everyone's favorite subject. And now it's generative AI. And if it weren't our favorite subject before, when NVIDIA came out with those earnings projections, it was really pretty extraordinary. Uh, we have people saying this is as, as big as electricity or fire or the invention of the wheel. Uh, are we overestimating what this generative AI may mean for us all? Well, the reason why the NVIDIA stock hopped so dramatically um, and came out with the extraordinary earnings is very much down to the dazzle factor, but also the confusion factor, because investors know that something big is happening. They don't really understand the technology. They don't understand the degree to which companies that are AI companies actually have a moat that can defend them from you know, new rivals. Um, and so there's a lot of uncertainty there. The one thing that's crystal clear, though, is that this, this is going to require a lot of computing power and a lot of chips. So people are grasping on anything they can see, the shiny new thing, to try and have a play at this whole wave. In terms of the significance of generative AI, um, it is obviously very significant. Um, you know, we've had AI for a very long time. It's all part of our, you know, everyday experience. Um, but, you know, for me, one of the ways to explain what's going on is that as an anthropologist, I always used to joke that the one thing that AI couldn't do is have a sense of humor and tell jokes <laughs> because jokes are fundamentally rooted in culture, which is hard to describe and hard to define and often very contradictory. And most of the traditional um, platforms inside computers looked for logic and patterns um, and, and things like that. What you're starting to see with um, platforms like generative AI are machines that are so sophisticated and so good at watching people and replicating human behavior even if it's not logical, um, behaving like an anthropologist, not a scientist, that you're starting to get um, AI platforms which are almost beginning to tell jokes. Um, so it's really quite a big change in terms of what's happening. The big question, though, is what it means in terms of real-world applications um, and company valuations. So, so Laurie, let me talk, talk, turn to you here on how big this could be. Is this a new lease on life for all of tech, essentially? So, look, I think this is another thing you can put in the category of rallies that have been deserved. And I know it's, you know, sort of trendy to go out and say, you know, the market is toppy and this is just all this AI hype and it's not deserved. Um, I, I think there's a paucity of growth stories out there right now. And when you think about the conversation on reshoring that's been going on, I've been talking to a lot of investors about that. And recent months is kind of the only big interesting growth narrative out there. Well, now we've got something to keep it company, which is AI. Um, ultimately, my gut is that this is going to be another productivity enhancer, something very cool, something very interesting that enhances productivity. Is it going to completely transform society? I'm not quite sure I'm in that camp. But in terms of the market and why it's getting so excited, I think it's because there hasn't been a lot of other things in this kind of category of secular growth stories to get excited about recently. Julian, I'm going to ask you to do something very unfair. You have a terrific column in the Financial Times about D DIIA, I believe it's called, in Ukraine. Could you just give us 30 or 45 seconds on that? Because I, I thought it was really extraordinary. I'd love you to come back and really explain it in more detail. As an idea is an app that Ukrainians launched three years ago to enable Ukrainian citizens to do all the usual government functions that any of us ever have to do, not by going to an office and filling in paper forms, but on your phone with an app. 
And initially, it seemed like just a very minor tool that a few people might use for things like vaccination um, status in COVID. But these days, 70% of Ukrainian phones have this app. Half the population is using it. They're doing almost everything to do with the government on this cell phone app. And the key point is that not only has it meant that Ukraine's kept functioning, even as refugees have flooded everywhere, because they've all got their you know passports and stuff on their phone, but it's also meant that they have one way, potentially, to try and cut down on corruption. And the crucial thing to understand, the reason why it's so important this week, is because they're trying to take it, the USAID is trying to take it and export it to other countries. A tech export from Ukraine, how about that? And particularly if it deals with DMV, I'd be all for it. Many thanks to Lori Calvacina of RBC Capital Markets and Julian Tett of the Financial Times. Coming up, could your friendly neighborhood chat AI beat the stock market? We're gonna hear from investing guru David Booth of Dimensional Fund Ad Ad Advisors. He has some doubts about it. He's not sure that you can beat the market with AI. That's gonna come up next on Wall Street Week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Private equity. It's come a long way since Henry Kravis and George Roberts put it on the map with that $25 billion buyout of RJR Nabisco back in 1988, made famous in Barbarians at the Gate. I'm talking about putting a mountain of money into everybody's pocket right now. And it has evolved since Democrats tried to make Mitt Romney's role in running Bain Capital an issue in the 2012 presidential campaign. 
It's a very healthy and positive debate. That doesn't mean the private equity world is going to enjoy it very much. Today, private equity is a massive asset class with over $11 trillion invested and another $3 trillion in so-called dry powder waiting to be deployed. Although higher rates slowed things down at the end of last year, it's just beginning to show signs of coming back. Fourth quarter of 22, you had nothing. Today, you actually have the markets uh, loosening up for the right deals. Leaving us all to look for that right deal. And to take us into the world of private equity, we welcome two people who are in it from HGGC. We have, first of all, Steve Young, who's the chairman of HGGC, as well as the co-founder. And we also have Rich Lawson, who's the CEO and also co-founder of HGGC. So welcome, gentlemen. It's great to have you here. Uh, first of all, give us a sense of how HGGC fits into this world of private equity. Steve, you want to go first? From the very beginning, uh, from our roots, we decided that we wanted to do private equity differently. And we believe that across the table were people that were founders, you know, uh, financial sponsors, uh, management teams. Across the table is somebody who cares more about who I am than the last dollar and what I bring to the table than the last dollar. And the fundamental principle is that partnership investing will rule, will rule the world. And uh, 15 years ago, that was a little bit of a bet. Today, partnership investing is taking over the world. And so for us, the differentiation that we make is that we live here. We seek your reference across the table. We need your reference at the end of this engagement where uh, because that's how we're going to go forward because that's all we do is partnership investing where others will say we're partnership investors but they rent here they rent here for the time and they don't really it's not rooted who they are rich this partnership investing sounds really nice and i can understand why you might attract a lot of deals that way can you make as much money because that's not let's be frank the model historically associated with private equity we think of it as coming in and buying it stripping a lot of costs out and reselling it where we focus is in the middle market so medium-sized businesses so for us as a seven billion dollar private equity firm where we tend to see the opportunity to create real alpha is buying good businesses in the middle market as traditionally defined with the goal of transforming them into great companies so rich it sounds like when you come in it's not the management team that you're replacing you don't come in by definition you pick companies that have good management teams so what is it you're providing is it capital basically and typically in private equity we think of leveraging up your capital is equity as i understand it we would think about it in sort of three different deal archetypes. Uh, one is buy and builds, which is very important in this type of macro environment. Um, the second would be in business transformation, helping upgrade, upgrading core capabilities and processes. And third is growth enablement, maybe a change in the go-to-market process, the go-to-market motion, helping businesses go global. But again, we're taking very distinctly medium-sized companies, call it a billion dollars of enterprise value and below, and we're creating multi-billion dollar uh, enterprises over the course of uh, a partnership with the owners of that business. Uh, Steve, I understand you focus on the middle market, if I can call it that. Uh, are there particular sectors that you tend to uh, be attracted to or see deals from? We live in Palo Alto, California. That's our that's our uh, our base of operations. So we've been in technology for 25, 30 years. So we're going to do some technology, no question. But how tech has informed places like business services, uh, financial services, and even some consumer in in particular places is where we will kind of trade. We won't go further than that, but that's a pretty wide swath. But we are gaining uh, through our thematic sourcing efforts uh, some real expertise in our shop, and uh, you know we'll. 
we are now trying for the first time. You'd think I'd been in kind of working to do a sports angle and sports investing uh, from the very beginning of my previous life. But I, I took my my heroes, Roger Staubach's, uh uh, he told me that the, you know when I when I first retired, I said, "What should I do? What's your what's your recommendation? Just run." And so I ran, and so I I felt a little bit awkward, you know, reinvesting back into sports. But now I've kind of matured in my private equity life that I've been in longer than I played football. Well, I was going to ask you that, Steve. Obviously, given we all think of you with a 49ers helmet on, that's the way we know Steve Young. Uh, given that, do you get more deal flow out of sports? Do people tend to come to you? And I know you've done a lot of work actually with other uh, former professional athletes to help them in their business ventures. So one of my passions is to try to pay it forward uh, and trying to create trying to create a repository of transition stories from professional life into you know the, the next phase of their lives. And I've always talked about that as a uh, a hard uh, ending to a to a passion for people and then finding out that they're middle aged and they don't have it, you know, I was great at something and the next day I'm not good at anything. And so how do those transition stories and how to pay it forward for other athletes today, I'm really passionate about trying to figure out how to tell those stories about people who have transitioned, good and bad. Uh, Rich Powell, mm -hmm. the last time I checked, is in Silicon Valley. We had Silicon Valley Bank. Has the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other regional banks, has it affected your business? In a way, it's sort of accelerated the opportunity around this tilt towards partnership. Um, we find that that really large and growing ecosystem of venture-backed businesses um, are looking for outcomes, right? You have uh, an ecosystem of venture capital and growth equity investors. You have wonderful entrepreneurs uh, that are around these businesses. But if you think about what Steve had mentioned, the essence of what we do, uh, we're looking for folks that in the kind of businesses that we're transforming from good companies or good businesses to great companies, um, is uh, numerous owners. And so what we found, David, is that because of what's happened uh, with uh, the macro environment, with SVB and others, you have this really large universe of smaller companies that would have typically raised a series C, D, E, F, and gone public that have now said, maybe it might be better to join forces with one of our core uh, active portfolio companies. Rich, one of the precipitating effect, uh, causes of what happened in Silicon Valley Bank was the higher interest rates. That really took down the valuations of a lot of private equity companies. Is it affecting your business, Rich, the, the diminishment, of, I assume, of the valuations given what's going with the, with the discount rate? In uncertain macro environments, business quality becomes more important than ever. And because these companies tend to be more resilient in the face of macro pressures, the type of businesses that we look for, invest in, help support, transform, um, even if they do get impacted in the near term, uh, you will see them rebound quickly. Uh, Steve, I can't let uh, a Super Bowl most valuable player quarterback go without asking one question about valuations of professional sports teams. They are through the roof as we talk to people. It is just extraordinary. And I talk to some of the investors who say they're going to keep going. What do you make about some of the valuations we're seeing now on some of the pro teams? David, I, I, my stat might be a little bit off, but it's not a lot off. 75 of the top 100 shows on television, highest rated shows on television, 75 of the top 100 were NFL football games. Think of the power in that stat. Equity values have 20 times in the last 20 years. And, you know, people say players are paid too much. Quarterbacks are making $60 million a year. As far as equity value growth in the last 20 years, quarterback salary growth has not, is only half of it. 
And uh, so I'm not saying they should be paid more. I'm just saying that equity values are, are through the roof because of the power of live television. And you've seen that around the sports world. And NBA, and Major League Baseball was on its back 20 years ago. Uh, I'm overstating it, but uh, you know now flourishing because live t television runs the world, and and the NFL runs live television uh, by a long way. So you talk about the power of the NFL; that power only grows, and that's why you think you know a, a 49er team that's worth eight to ten billion dollars could be 20 billion, could be. Th I mean, the upper ends are you know who knows. But the NFL's done a great job of building equity value. That's for sure. General, I can't thank you enough for joining us here on Wall Street Week. That is Steve Young, of course, as well as Rich Lawson of HGGC. Coming up, there's a big fight in Washington over the deficit. But should there be? We ask Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman. What really bothers me where we are right now is that the programs that apparently are sacrosanct are programs for the elderly. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. I thought uh, Hamilton had it right. He said uh, a national debt could be a national blessing. And the national debt, having a liquid market there, provides a good benchmark for the private sector. Mm -hmm. It probably underpins the role of the dollar in the world. It allows the Fed to conduct uh, monetary policy easily. Uh, I think we have to keep in mind the costs of paying down the debt. Uh, there is, a, among some people, a single-minded focus on it, uh, but there's no free lunch in this world. 
That was Larry Lindsay, President George W. Bush's director of the National Economic Council back in 2001. That was a time when the concern was not about how big the federal debt was, but that we might actually pay it all off. To explain today what we should and should not be worried about when it comes to the debt and the deficits we're running up, we welcome now Dr. Paul Krugman. He's Distinguished Professor of Economics at the City University of New York and the recipient of the Nobel Prize in the Economic Sciences. So, Dr. Krugman, thank you so much for being with us. We hear a lot of talk from politicians in Washington, as we should about the debt. We don't hear as much I don't hear about the economics of it all. Why don't you give us your analysis of what we should be concerned about with the debt and what we should not be as concerned about? Okay, there's a pretty strong case that debt is just a, a number, that the, the United States, um, absent you know, the political games over the debt ceiling, which is a really you know, uniquely American dysfunction, aside from that, there's no hint that financial markets are concerned about America's ability to service its debt. There's no real sign that the debt is putting any strain on the economy. Um, there are, U.S. debt is very high for, by our own historical standards. The only time we've been close to this level was in the immediate aftermath of World War II. But it's not that high compared with what a lot of other countries have experienced over the years uh, without any kind of crisis. So. You know, it, the any it, the numbers are enormous, but everything about the U.S. economy is enormous. So you say thirty-one trillion dollars, and you do your best, Doctor Evil imitation. But it's not at all clear that the debt is a top priority. You know that it's a catastrophic issue, or even that it even belongs in the top five, or maybe even the top ten of issues to concern the United States. So maybe not catastrophic, but is it, is it a growing problem in this sense? The debt itself is just one number. What about when you put it together with another number, which is debt service? Because as I understand it, part of the question is, uh, how fast is debt service cost growing? We have had essentially zero cost of, of debt service. Those are going up now. Does that pose a real risk? The idea that Having to that, that we're in, that we're in some kind of debt spiral where we have to borrow to pay interest and then we have to I mean the numbers don't support that at all the numbers don't suggest that anything like that is going to be a problem for the foreseeable future uh, so no I mean it's just it's um, we've gone from a point where money was you know free or even uh, in real terms possibly. Uh, uh, we were being the federal government was being paid to take on debt to one where it costs something, but it's still pretty small. So let's talk about some of the proposals about how to avoid raising the debt too much, and that is some capping of spending, particularly discretionary spending. What are the possible consequences of that if, in fact, we do freeze or reduce spending off of 2022 levels? What really bothers me where we are right now is that the programs that apparently are sacrosanct are programs for the elderly. Medicare, Social Security uh, are off the table. They're being protected. And a lot of the stuff that's discretionary is really things like uh, uh, programs that support uh, children, that support education, that support nutrition for the young, which is the future. So what's happening right now is that in the effort to hold down headline spending Right now, we're actually kind of disinvesting 
in in the country's future, and that's that's pretty alarming. So, so that is a terribly important and very unpopular point. Going back to the politics for a moment here, and that is when you say let's cut things for the elder. That's never very popular. I'm elderly at this point, but at the same time, we're not really investing in future growth, as I understand it, by paying more, for example, on Social Security. Whereas investing in education or children or infrastructure could increase the future growth. To what extent do we need to be concerned about growing ourselves out of whatever debt issues we have? Well, to a large extent, that's going to happen anyway. I mean, I, when I say you need to adjust for inflation, you really also need to ask about growth. And, you know, the, the example I always like to use is, you know, how did we pay off the debt from World War II? And the answer is we didn't. Uh, uh, we had slightly higher debt when John F. Kennedy w took office than we did on, uh, you know, when when uh, when we declared victory over Japan. Um, but the debt had dwindled. Uh, it was, you know, it was less than half the share of GDP that it had been at the end of World War II, because we had a growing economy and a little bit of inflation over that period. And that's largely we're still in a world where we. We really are already set to, if not exactly grow out of our debt, at least not have it grow very much, you know, uncontrollably, unless we do you know, some really uh, even even more irresponsible things than we do now. So, uh, and look, if you want to try to accelerate economic growth, there's not a lot of things that we know work. Uh, investing more in children's health, nutrition. Um, is one of the things that we do know works, but it you know works with a very long lag. It's something that will show up 30 years from now in, in a better economy. Uh, aside from that, if you ask what can we do to make the economy grow a lot faster over the next 10 years, the answer is nobody knows the answer to that. Uh, so, Professor, you referred to the size of the, the debt uh, going back to G GDP. Right now, the projections, I think we're somewhere around 97, 98 percent of GDP, something like that right now. And the projections from CBO, as you know, go up to 120 percent and maybe keep going. At what point do we become concerned about that? You say now it's not a problem, but when does it become a problem? When would you start saying, wait a second, we're running into trouble? Um, it's hard to come up with a number. And, you know, we look at Japan with 200 percent of GDP and Japan has lots of problems, but unwillingness uh, of the market to buy Japanese government bonds is not is not one of them. Um, I always uh, I like to point out that the if we go back uh, to you know the Industrial Revolution in, in Great Britain, uh, first half of the 19th century, Britain had debt uh, that was 180 percent of GDP at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. By 1850, it was only down to 130% of GDP. And this is the, you know, this is the Industrial Revolution. This is the birth of the modern age taking place under what anybody now would say, oh, that must be a crippling debt burden. So, uh, you know, is, is there any, there must be somehow we can't have uh, our debt can't exceed our total national wealth uh, but we're nowhere close to that and I, I don't see any number anywhere in these projections that is one that based on history would lead you to be concerned 
One of the things we hear about from some quarters, at least, is a concern about the strength of the dollar. That, in fact, uh, the globe will lose some confidence in our fiscal abilities here in the United States. And we have seen uh, sort of a dilution of the dollar as the, the reserve currency of the world. Fewer transactions, as I understand it, today are being transacted in dollars than before. You've written about the fact that you don't think there's another currency that will overtake it, but that perhaps it will become more of a plurality. Is that a likely development? And if so, what would be the consequences? I always say that the big problem is not that something else might take the dollar's place. The problem is that there may be nothing else that can take the dollar's place. When you think about the alternatives, the euro uh, is uh, unfortunately the because of uh, euro crises and divergences. There's not a, a euro bond market. There's just there's an Italian bond market, a German bond market. So that's a fragmented market, which means that euro securities are not liquid in the way that dollar securities are. Uh, China has capital controls. It has a, an authoritarian regime given to making erratic, sudden changes in policy. Who wants to use RMB as, as, a, as their key asset? Uh, Japan is just too small uh, an economy. So, you know, the, it's not that the U.S. derives a huge advantage from the fact that the dollar is the currency in the world. Um, it's that the world derives a huge advantage from the fact that there are safe, highly liquid assets that can be used as collateral, that can be used as the sort of underpinning of the whole world financial system. And those safe, liquid assets are U.S. Treasury securities. And if we manage to destroy the credibility, then the whole world, including us, but not the whole world suffers. It's not that somebody gains at our advantage. It's that we, we undermine the whole system. Okay, Professor, thank you so very much for joining us. That's Professor Paul Krugman of the City University of New York. Coming up, would a rose by any other name smell as sweet? Some people seem to think so, including maybe even the Fed. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. So AI may or may not be helping along the stock market, at least right now. But the question is, what could it do for the longer term with respect to investments? And for that, we turn to a truly gifted investor. He is David Booth. He is, of course, the founder and chair of Dimensional Fund Advisors. David, thank you so much for being with us. You wrote a column in the Financial Times expressing some, if I can put it, skepticism about whether all of this uh, generative AI may help us be better stock pickers. How do you see it? AI is going to be incredibly useful in a lot of areas because it can process such enormous amounts of information. And that's really what uh, you know, selecting securities is all about, is uh, you know, trying to figure out how much undiscounted information is out there. So uh, at, at first blush, it looks like it could be incredibly useful. Although, uh, regardless of how uh, elaborate and extensive your AI is, is not as, ex as, as elaborate and as extensive as the market. You think of the stock market as just being, we think of it as just being a, this enormous information processing machine. <laughs> uh, that uh, everyone in the world is out there trying to buy and sell securities, and it's their action uh, that causes prices to be settled at, uh, at, at, reasonable, uh, at reasonable levels. Finally, one more thought. What's in a name? Shakespeare had Romeo ask that question to suggest that this perceived difference between his Montagues and his beloved Juliet's Capulets shouldn't come between them. 
but in today's world, how a person or a product or even a country is perceived can be all important. Take, for example, Korean car company Hyundai, once perceived as a reliable, inexpensive, rather boring alternative to high-priced and flashier European alternatives, it has gotten a whole new lease on life, creating adventurous designs for the EV world, making it a formidable competitor even to Tesla, causing the Wall Street Journal this week to ask, how did Hyundai get so cool? It's an EV, rhymes with Kev. And it's not just Hyundai that's looking to freshen up its brand. Consider Facebook, with Mark Zuckerberg going so far as to rename his entire company in a bid to make up some lost ground to TikTok. Though the arc of his space shot to the metaverse may get bent a bit by the gravitational pull of generative AI. AI is already crucial to the foundations of the metaverse and will be even more so in the future. All this rebranding has now apparently made it all the way to the Oval Office, as the New York Times caught Speaker of the House McCarthy, as well as House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, holding an important debt ceiling meeting with the president wearing those flashy dress sneakers. But before we get too terribly excited, it would be well to remember some famous instances where attempts to rebrand fell well short of the mark. Starting with the auto industry itself. Does anyone remember the campaign in the late 80s to make us think that the Oldsmobile was really for young people? In short, the new Cutlass Supreme is not your father's Oldsmobile. And has anyone seen any Oldsmobiles around lately? Or how about that so-called New Coke that was going to revive a time-honored brand? New Coke is catching on. The taste is better and newer than... than, 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 than. You said the P word. Rebranding has been known to extend even to the world of geopolitics, as Secretary of State Hillary Clinton did with her famous campaign to turn things around with Russia. We want to reset our relationship. Looking back on it now, in the light of Ukraine, it's not clear exactly what the world got out of that particular rebranding. Even the central banks are getting in the game, with the debate raging this week about whether the Fed would execute a pause or a skip at its June meeting. I'm not a massive fan of these uh, linguistic acrobatics that central banks end up getting themselves into. But maybe the place where we need rebranding the most is in how Washington deals with things like budgets and deficits. Oh, and oh yes, the full faith and credit of the United States of America. But that may take more than just a new logo or new shoes with white soles. For that, we may need a fundamental rethinking. The point is we need a new spending process. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.